This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 17, Episode 16, Broken, the Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion, talking with author Professor Evelyn Al-Sutani. As America's Muslim population increases and integrates into the mainstream, their depiction in popular culture is the topic of today's podcast. Professor Evelyn Al-Sultani of the University of Southern California is our guest today. She's an expert on the history of representations of Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. media and on forms of anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism. She joins us from her office in Los Angeles. Hi, Evelyn, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me. Evelyn, please take a few moments and share your biography with us. So I was born and raised in New York City in the 1970s and 80s is when I was there growing up as a child. And I was born into a multicultural family. My father was an Iraqi Muslim immigrant. He came to the U.S. in the 1960s. And my birth mom was a Cuban Catholic immigrant who came from Cuba right after the Cuban Revolution. My dad married my stepmom, who raised me from when I was six onwards. And she's from Colombia, Colombia Catholic. And uh, she came to the U.S. in the 1970s. So I grew up in a very multicultural household, and it very much shaped my interests in the kind of work that I'm doing around questions of racism and diversity. As an undergrad, I went to the University of Michigan. And while I was there, I was taken by classes that I took in ethnic studies and women's studies. And it really helped me learn about the world that I had grown up in and put a language to experiences of feeling marginalized. And I really wanted to take a course on Arab Americans or Muslims in the U.S. to understand that experience. But there were no courses in that. And if you wanted to learn about Arabs, you went to Middle East studies. And if you wanted to learn about Islam, you go to religious studies. And there were no courses in the U.S. context on these populations at the time. This was in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So when I went to grad school, my proposal was to bring... Arabs and Muslims into conversations about race in the United States. Since we're on the San Francisco experience, it's relevant that I went to Stanford. I actually lived uh, in four years and in San Jose for a year during that time period. And I was accepted on that project, but I was told, you know what, you're not going to get a job with that. Mm-hmm. Look at the job listings. Jobs about Arabs and Muslims mean you go to Middle East studies or religious studies, not American studies or ethnic studies. So mm-hmm. I was encouraged to change my topic. Then 9-11 happened and people seeing that my topic was cutting edge. So it was a, a real shift in things. And uh, when I got my PhD, I was hired at the University of Michigan in their American studies program. And I was able to come full circle 10 years later after I had been there. And I co-founded an Arab and Muslim American studies program within their ethnic studies uh, departments and started teaching all the courses that I wish I would have taken when I was there. Taught at Michigan for 13 years and I've been at USC for the last four years. Now, Evelyn, tell us about Jack Shaheen. Who is he? 
and of course his study of American cinema's depiction of Arabs and Muslims in film and TV. He cited over 1,000 films made in the 20th and 21st centuries depicting Arabs and Muslims. What were his findings? So Jack Shaheen was one of my mentors. He passed away a few years ago, and he devoted his entire life to fighting stereotypes about Arabs in the media. He wrote a book that was published in 2000 called Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood Vilifies a People. And the book operates like an encyclopedia. You can look up a number of any film, basically, that represents an Arab from the late 1800s until 2000 mm. and you can read his notes on each film and their depiction on of arabs and he says that out of the almost 1000 movies that he looks at over a, a whole century that he would characterize 12 of them as positive and 52 as even-handed and he shows that over this 100 year period we are seeing arab women portrayed as belly dancers harem girls, oppressed veiled women, and Arab men as romantic sheiks, rich oil sheiks, and of course, terrorists. Uh, the most common representation is of Arabs as a threat. And I should also mention that Arab and Muslim identities have been conflated historically, and that many Arabs are Muslim. So Arab is the ethnicity, Islam is the religion, but not all Muslims are Arab. So out of all the Muslims worldwide, there are 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide, about 15% of them are Arab. Hollywood representations have depicted Arabs and Muslims as one and the same. And so even though his, his book focuses on Arabs, it's also by default about Muslims too because of the representation. So he really shows that we have been primed for a century to reduce 1.8 billion to a handful of stereotypes. And I would also like to add that I've heard for so many years, it's changing a little bit now, uh, this idea, oh, but it's just entertainment. It doesn't matter. It doesn't impact us. We know it's make-believe. But there have been a lot of studies that have shown that there is a correlation between the media that we consume and then the attitudes that we hold and I have a colleague, Muniba Salim, at the University of Santa Barbara, and she did a study that revealed that the more we consume images of Arabs and Muslims as violent, the more likely we are to support policies that restrict their civil liberties in the U.S., more likely to support war in the countries. So it actually leads this to our, not just our perceptions, but our public opinion and our public policies and has devastating impact on people's lives. Now, you talked about some key dates and events that coincided with the popular depictions of Arabs and Muslims, namely 1948, 1967, 73, 79, 1991, so these dates have very much shaped how Arabs and Muslims have been portrayed in the media and also in political discourses. My understanding comes from Melanie McAllister's book, Epic Encounters, uh, in which she examines how the Middle East became meaningful to Americans, and she tracks these different dates. So 1948 is when the state of Israel was inaugurated. And it is at this moment that we start seeing the beginnings of Palestinians in particular 
being portrayed as terrorists. So they're not seen as people who have a grievance because another group has established a nation on their land, but rather they're portrayed as violent, unreasonable terrorists. So that started in 1948, and it gets solidified in 1967 after the Arab-Israeli War. So a lot of our media depictions have been favorable to an Israeli point of view, unfavorable towards a Palestinian point of view. So the terrorists that we are so familiar with today actually have its origin in the Arab-Israeli conflict, and particularly in the dispossession of Palestinian land. Mm-hmm. The next important turning point, Middle Eastern politics become headline news in the United States. They're learning more about the Middle East. So the next important date is 1973, which is the Arab oil embargo. And this is when a group of Arab nations who sell oil to the United States and provide oil went on strike. And they told the United States that they would not provide oil in protest of the U.S. supporting Israel and their policies that were impacting Palestinians. So as a result of that, media portrayals started showing Arabs as rich oil sheiks who threaten the U.S. economy. And Jack Shaheen's book actually documents some films that were produced in the 1970s that have uh, this depiction of the rich Arab oil sheik Mm -hmm. and the threat to the U.S. economy. So we're building here on different kinds of threats, starting Mm -hmm. with a terrorist threat in the 1960s. And then in the 1970s, we have an economic threat. And this threat continues in 1979, 1980, with the Iran hostage crisis. Mm -hmm. And the Iran hostage crisis was in response to U.S. interference in Iranian affairs. And in particular, the Shah of Iran at the time was seen as a Western puppet uh, who had imprisoned many people in Iran for opposing his government. And when he was ousted, the United States gave him safe cover in the United States and people were protesting. They wanted him to be returned to Iran to face trial. So as a result of this crisis, Americans were held hostage for over a year. Uh, Melanie McAllister, in her book, she says that every single day, day one, day two, day 400, 444 days, and American families were watching this every day on their television Mm -hmm. screens, and there were movies also. After this happened, there were many, many hostage-themed movies that were produced Mm -hmm. where Arabs, Muslims, Iranians uh, were responsible for hijacking planes, taking people hostage. And so one of the things that happens during this time period is this conflation between Arabs and Muslims solidifies and we add Iranians. A lot of people are not aware that Iranians are not Arab, but we start to conflate all of these various identities and see them not only as threatening hostage takers, but as threatening the American family in particular, Mm. because we are seeing at that time, we were seeing images of people and their families grieving and wanting them to come home. So we went from a violent threat as a terrorist to threatening the U.S. economy to threatening the American family. Our next turning point is Mm 9-11. And 9-11 is complicated because a lot happens because it's a 20 year period. I think the, the war, we're just on the tail end right now of the war on terror, but we were living in a war on terror for 
almost 20 years. And at the very beginning, we did have more depictions of Arabs and Muslims as terrorists, which is to be expected. A terrorist attack just happened by people who of those identities. But what also happened is we start seeing some patriotic Muslim American characters. Mm -hmm. And this emerges because some civil rights organizations in the United States, like the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee and the Council on American-Islamic Relations, Mm -hmm. were approaching certain shows like 24, which was very popular, sorry, Kiefer Sutherland, and stating that they were concerned that if they continue to portray Arabs and Muslims as terrorists, that there would be an impact on Arab and Muslim life in the United States. So as a result, we start seeing patriotic Americans, which on the surface seems like a great improvement after a century of stereotypes. But what ends up happening is we see more Arab and Muslim characters, but it's still in the context of terrorism, and they are good because they are patriotic and willing to sacrifice their lives to prove that they're American. So it's a departure, but it's a very limited expansion. And then more recently, when Donald Trump first announced his idea for a Muslim ban, he first announced it actually in 2015 when he was on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. It really galvanized people. I think Trump's presidency as a, in general galvanized people who were concerned about discrimination and inequality. And it inspired Hollywood to take action. And they did. Mm-hmm. So we start seeing it's not for the first time. There are some there are moments before the Muslim ban. There's some examples here and there of more positive representations of Muslims, but this is a turning point. So, for example, there is Rami on Hulu, and this is a story about an Arab American Muslim family in New Jersey. It's um, a cringe comedy <laughs> and uh, explores his uh, struggles being Muslim and Western struggling between between trying to be religious and wanting to live in a secular world. We have a show called Mo on Netflix, which is about a Palestinian American in Houston, Texas. Uh There is We Are Lady Parts out of England, but uh, NBC bought it. So it's streaming on Peacock. And it's a, a wonderful show about five Muslim women who form a punk rock band. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are other examples. I mean, I have a list of over 20 shows. Oh. Uh, a few that these that I'm mentioning have Arab or Muslim as, as the star of the show and the focus of the show. But there are many other shows that started to include an Arab or Muslim character. For example, DC Legends of Tomorrow introduced an Iranian Muslim superhero. So there has been an opening and a change. Uh, I don't know if it will continue, but the Muslim ban ended up being good for Muslim representation in Hollywood. Well, listen, with that very rich background, you really set the table for talking about your book. So tell us about your book. Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion. What's the principal thesis of the book, Evelyn? Broken examines how Muslims came to be included in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives over the last decade or two. Even though Islamophobia is old, so some say Islamophobia is as old as Islam itself in the 7th century, the recognition of Islamophobia in the United States is new. 
we only really started using the language of Islamophobia around 2010. It wasn't even after 9-11. It took about a decade hmm. after 9-11 for it to become part of our lexicon. And it became recognized and used in the United States through a series of hate crimes and policies like the Muslim ban. There were other policies after 9-11, like special registration, USA Patriot Act, but it didn't really galvanize the public in the way that the Muslim ban did. Also, hate crimes are longstanding, but over the last decade or so, there have been a few hate crimes that have received national news attention and have become headline news. So there's been an increased recognition of Muslims that have made their inclusion possible. And the main argument I make in the book is that Muslims came to be included through what I call crisis diversity. Yes, what is crisis diversity? Could you give us a definition of that? Because uh, that, that initially, when I when I read that term, it stumped me. But uh, please give a please give us a definition of crisis identity. So, crisis diversity is when there is an event that draws attention to long-standing racism and galvanizes action. It's not unique to Muslims. So we can look at George Floyd as the ultimate crisis diversity mm -hmm. moment where he is killed by the police. It drew a lot of attention to longstanding racism. It wasn't new racism and it galvanized unprecedented action. But I'm looking at the case of Muslims, but this is a term that I think applies across the board to how we tend to approach diversity today. I think it is the most common approach to diversity. So we have an event, let's say the Muslim ban mm -hmm. or announcement of the possibility of a Muslim ban and people start recognizing, oh, Islamophobia is a problem. It might actually be codified in law. Then organizations, corporations and universities respond. And part of the argument in my book is that organizations, corporations and universities are playing a larger role in civil rights questions. So they respond, they issue statements, they, inst they institute new diversity initiatives focused on Muslims and including Muslims. And then the crisis moment passes and we don't really think about it again until we have another crisis moment. And on the one hand, the crisis moments provide an opportunity. And on the other hand, the crisis moments can be very limiting if we are only responding to the crisis and not recognizing that the crisis is revealing a very longstanding issue. Of course, the crisis moment was illustrating the, the stereotypes uh, and the, the lack of diversity. But how has the community, how has the, uh, the Arab and the Muslim American community gone about dealing with this? This, because when you when you have a moment like the, the George Floyd moment or the Muslim ban mo mo moment, it galvanizes for a time, but then d does it have a relatively short shelf life? It does have a short shelf life. In my own experience, and this happens also with organizations that do the work around Islamophobia and challenging Islamophobia, the event happens and then you're getting calls like crazy. You're getting inquiries. Can you do a workshop? Can you do an educational session? Can you write an article? Can you recommend books? Can you do all this stuff? And on the one hand, it's great. There's an opening. This is work I've been doing for so long. And then these moments, it feels like people care and they want to learn and you want to respond and fill that gap. Uh, it leads to exhaustion, leads to total burnout. But then the crisis moment does pass and 
we don't really think about it or talk about it or work on it until the next crisis. At universities, you know, I was at the University of Michigan for a long time, the crisis moments did lead to creating more reflection rooms on college campuses, for example. So religious Muslim students who pray five times a day, they'd often have to walk across campus to, there, there were these reflection spaces you could use for meditation or breastfeeding or prayer. The crisis moments led to, oh, well, what, what do Muslim students need on college campuses? Oh, let's add some more reflection rooms on campus. So it can, it can lead to initiatives that are inclusive Mm -hmm. of Muslims in different institutions and different arenas. This is just the example of universities, uh, but oftentimes the diversity initiative is focused on whatever group is under crisis. Now, how many universities in the United States have dedicated Arab Muslim studies programs? So when we started ours at the University of Michigan, we were the third. And at the time, we were the only ones that had a PhD program attached to it. Mm. So the other two at the time were at San Francisco State University. Mm -hmm. They have an Arab diaspora and I think it's called Muslim Ethnicities program. The University of Michigan Dearborn has an Arab American Studies Center and program Ours at the time was the first to, we started as Arab American studies, and then we expanded it to uh, Muslims as well, because a lot of the students in my classes weren't Arab, they were Muslim, they were trying to figure out how to process their identity in the world. So we expanded it at the time. Now, I know Marquette University in Illinois has one, and there are other universal USC, now that I'm at USC, myself and my colleague, Sarah Gualtieri, we are building something there. Mm-hmm. And there are other universities that have, if not a program, some kind of presence, a faculty member or two who do this kind of work. Are these programs largely popular with with students of, obviously, of Arab and Muslim background, but are there non-Arab Muslim students who are attracted to these programs to learn more about the, the culture and the history and the, the literature? And Yes. So I would say that the classes themselves are full and it is students of all different backgrounds. So when I was at Michigan, for example, I taught a course on 9-11, perspectives on 9-11, and I had students of all different backgrounds. And now that I look back during the time, I was teaching students who we might now refer to as the 9-11 generation, people who were either children when 9-11 happened and they're trying to process it, or they might have been born after 9-11 and grew up with the war on terror on on the television every single day. So a lot, it it was students of many different backgrounds. As far as those who actually, we had a minor in Arab and Muslim American studies, I would say probably 70% were either Arab or Muslim background and 30% were various different backgrounds and also just, you know, trying to learn about this 9-11 war on terror moment Mm -hmm. and uh, use that in their future career. Of course, you're setting up a program with your colleague there at University of Southern California. Is the is the word spreading to other campuses? Because you mentioned Marquette, you mentioned University of uh, San Francisco State University. Well, I'm very familiar with that. And of course, they were one of the first universities in the United States back in 1969, which set up an ethnic studies program. And and of course, it's great to see that that tradition lives on in the creation of an Arab and Muslim ethnic studies uh, studies group. 
is this spreading like wildfire or it's it's a slow and deliberate adoption across uh, across academia here in the United States? I would say that during certain crisis moments, yes. there's been opportunities to push it at universities. And so those that have programs were able to develop it during those moments. I wouldn't say it's spreading like wildfire, but there is a cohort of people, and I'm a part of them, who've been trying to look at how do we understand the experiences of Arab Americans? How do we understand the experiences of Muslims in the U.S. in the context of ethnic studies, in the context of race in the United States? Even though Islam is a religion, it is not a race, but it has been racialized. So how mm-hmm. can we understand these processes? And so this cohort of people, wherever they are, have been trying to establish at least some courses and if not some more uh, visible institutionalizing um, the, this field of study. My colleague at Marquette University, actually Louise Kankar, she often points out that Arabs were not part of ethnic studies because Arab Americans are classified as white by the U.S. Census. And this has been contested since the 1990s. Arab American groups have been lobbying to have a Middle Eastern North African box. Mm-hmm. But right now, if you fill out the census, it is assumed or expected that people from the Middle East and North Africa would check white. And then because Islam is a religion and it is not a race, it's, it didn't really align with ethnic studies paradigms. Uh, but then after 9-11, there was more recognition that these communities were being demonized and more than anything else portrayed as threats to U.S. national security, having great impacts on their lives and their experiences and There were some studies that came out that said um, half of all Muslims in the U.S. report experiencing some kind of discrimination. So people have been mobilizing to try to understand that and offer, in uh, in the university context, offer opportunities for students to learn more about that. Is there a geographic concentration? Of course, there is a geographic concentration of uh, Muslim and Arab Americans here in the United States. You mentioned University of Michigan, where you studied and where you helped to set up the the program there. I understand in in Detroit and in Michigan, there's a, a large concentration. Here in California, of course, with almost 40 million people, very diverse state. We we have a significant Muslim and Arab population here. Hence, your your efforts in Southern California and Los Angeles at University of Southern California. Any other any other major concentrations in the New? Uh, what about the New York area? Are there are there universities in New York and the New York region which are which, which have programs like this? I'm trying to think because New York does have a very large concentration, yes. and there are I know of faculty in the New York area who are teaching these kinds of courses, but I'm not aware of any actual programs. And in the DC area, there's also a large population there. Uh, But I'm not I'm not aware of any kind of actual established program. I could be wrong, though. In Michigan, there was a a very large visible Arab American community, Mm -hmm. Muslim community, many of the Arab students were Muslim, not all of them. And uh, so there was a certain synergy that I felt while I was there in terms of the kind of work I was doing, and what the students wanted. Coming to California, it feels a little bit different. There, most of the students that I'm interacting with have more of an interest in the category of Arab, Iranian, Middle Eastern, as opposed to Muslim. Mm-hmm. And in Michigan, there was a, a great demand for understanding uh, the experiences of Muslims. So you're very much a pioneer in this area of academia. 
why, thank you. I, I am myself, <laughs> not by myself. Me, uh, along with uh, a handful of colleagues that uh, have been trying to do this work for the last 20 years. Now, let's move on to the the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the Hollywood Bureau. Tell me a little bit about that and the role that they play vis-a-vis Hollywood, the studios, making sure that uh, young men and women of Muslim Arab Arab background are being introduced to to Hollywood to the big TV networks for as actors and actresses to to further their careers. Tell me about the work that they do because that's a, that's that's a very positive thing. Yes, when I moved to LA, I really wanted to connect with the Muslim Public Affairs Council because they have a Hollywood bureau that offers consulting services to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And when I got here, I did reach out and I met Sue O'Beatty, who's the director of the Hollywood Bureau. And they've been doing a lot of really important work in Hollywood. In addition to doing consulting work, they also hold workshops for Muslim writers and creatives to try to help them hone their skills. And then they actually connect these writers to their connections in Hollywood to try to support them in actually getting their stories made. So the idea is in terms of looking at this history of stereotypes that we just need more stories. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with the terrorist one, but the terrorist one has been told so many times it represents the whole community. So the remedy then that the Muslim Public Affairs Council is working on is cultivating the talent of Muslim creatives and getting their foot in the door so that we can start seeing some of their work on the big screen. So they offer fellowships, writing workshops, consulting, and there's a lot of really great and important work that they're doing. And since uh, Sue Obeidi had been working on the ground and I had been working more on the research end, when we met, we decided to team up. Mm-hmm and create a test. So we created the Obedi al-Sultani test, uh-huh. which is a test to help Hollywood improve representations of Muslims. And we were inspired by many other tests. There is a Bechtel test named after Alison Bechtel, who is a cartoonist and playwright. And that is a test to measure representations of women. There's the DuVernay test, which is named after the director, Ava DuVernay to measure racial representation. There's the Russo test after Vidi Russo to uh, measure representations of LGBTQ people on screen. So there are many other tests and we were inspired by those tests. And there actually is a test that precedes ours about Muslims called the Riz test named after Riz Ahmed. It was uh, created in England. And uh, the Riz test highlights, makes people aware of representations of women as oppressed, and of Muslim men as terrorists. Ours is different because Mm -hmm. we were having a lot of conversations about, wow, the industry is really changing. They're trying. They are trying to include Muslims in Mm -hmm. representations. They're trying to diversify in every possible way, but oftentimes the efforts fall short. And so we started noticing, oh, in this scene, the Muslim person didn't pray properly and Twitter's going nuts. Mm-hmm. Oh, in this scene, they're trying, but why do we have to think he's a terrorist before revealing that he's not? Mm-hmm. So our test is trying to specifically point out common 
pitfalls that happen on the path to diversifying and mm. to help Hollywood diversify better. So it's called the Obedi Al-Sultani test. That's very exciting that you've actually uh, you, you've created a test which the which the film industry, the TV industry, is is using and helping to break these stereotypes and create uh, create more professional opportunity for young creatives of uh, Muslim and Arab ancestry. That's terrific, and and also for the viewing public, I want to have an experience. I I want to be able to watch a film where I see where I see complex, realistic characters uh, being presented to me and, and not stereotypes, lazy stereotypes. Uh, so kudos to you and to Sue for creating this uh, test. And I'll be, I'll, I'll be watching to see and coming back to you and, uh, as, as I watch for Arab and Muslim characters kind of share with you, uh, obviously, that these tests seem to be working uh, as these characters become more realistic and uh, more nuanced. Yes, I hope so. Well, Evelyn, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners about your book? You've, you've certainly educated me on this subject matter. Do you have some closing thoughts on your book that you can share with our listeners? Sure. So my hope for the book is that it is for people who are interested in anti-racism and diversity and that it will help both individuals and also people in leadership positions in corporations or in Hollywood or at universities think more deeply about what the path towards diversity, equity, inclusion looks like with more effective measures. What if we were to think beyond the crisis? Mm -hmm. What if we were to think about the root causes when we are coming up with diversity, equity, and inclusion plans? How might that change the impact? What if we weren't only motivated by the crisis? What if we kept working on things? And again, not just for Muslims, but for all the communities that have been historically underrepresented. So I hope that for your listeners, that for those who are interested in this question of diversity, and we are at a very exciting time in the United States, it is still very controversial. We are not on the same page as Americans, but there are at least half of the public is very much interested and invested in creating a more diverse society. So I hope this book advances that conversation. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Evelyn El-Sultani, for joining us today to discuss her book, Broken, The Failed Promise of Muslim Inclusion. And Evelyn, where can our listeners buy a copy of your book? So my book is sold at most booksellers. It is at Amazon.com. It is at NYU Press's website and probably at some local booksellers as well. And Evelyn, how can our listeners follow you? You can learn more about me at my website, which is EvelynAlSultani.com. And I'm very new to Twitter. I just joined a few weeks ago, but you can find me on Twitter too at Evelyn Al-Sultani. Very good. Evelyn Al-Sultani. And I'll spell that. Of course, it's Evelyn, E-V-E-L-Y-N. And Al-Sultani is spelled A-L-S-U-L-T-A-N-Y. Correct? Correct. Okay, very good. That's at Evelyn Al-Sultani, that is your Twitter handle. Once again, Evelyn, thank you so much for being our guest today, for enlightening us on both your book. And uh, it's, it's great to see that the, the Arab and the Muslim American community is breaking down doors. And hopefully we don't have to wait for another crisis diversity moment 
for further advancement for young creatives from the Arab and the Muslim community here in the United States. Thank you so much, Jim. I really enjoyed speaking with you. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 340 as we continue to mark our second anniversary. The San Francisco Experience has listeners in 65 countries and is carried on 19 platforms. Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, and Audacity, America's second largest radio network. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco. 